0: Bob Dylan once told Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones that the Hawks were the greatest band in the world. I'm sure that may have puzzled an outsider. How could a group that was playing bar gigs before hooking up with Dylan be the greatest band in the world? They didn't even have any albums released, nor did anybody really know who they were. They were hidden amongst the shadows on the stage, ignored by outsiders and fans, and the fervor of the press. But after touring the world with Dylan through 1965 and 1966, the Hawks were back in New York. And this is where Dylan's words to Keith Richards start to form an opinion, and which I think many would consider now a fact. Dylan was pretty beat up after the world tour. By the time they hit their last stint of shows in the United Kingdom, Dylan nearly drowned in a bathtub He was also nursing a pretty large pill addiction and was losing weight rapidly. The idea was to regroup and detox in New York for a few months in the summer before heading out on tour again for the rest of the year. This was the first time in a while the Hawks had a chance to take a break from the road and enjoy themselves. And while the Hawks had toured and seen more of the world than most young men in their 20s, New York was still very new. So it uh, took a couple of trips, you know, to to get into it. You just go in the first time and you get your ass kicked and you take off. As Soon as it heals up, you come back and uh, you try it again.
1: Eventually, you fall right in love with it. In July of
0: 1966, Albert Grossman's office called to inform the Hawks that Dylan had been in a motorcycle accident in Woodstock and had severely hurt his neck. Essentially meaning Dylan wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. That put a massive damper on any plans to go on the road for the foreseeable future. Now the Hawks were a road band, used to touring. What would they do now? They also didn't have leave on, and for the first time this was really setting in. But the Hawks still wanted to record, so their focus shifted to finding a place to rehearse. Now, while it was terrible that Dylan was injured, it was a blessing in disguise for both camps. It allowed Dylan to detox and focus on his health, and for the Hawks, it gave them valuable time to get in the studio and workshop some of their own music. With more time to plan, their next move, they headed back to Canada to see their families. Rick, Robbie and Richard even hung out with the Beatles while they were playing in Toronto. wanting to check them out? They'd become somewhat familiar and friendly with the Beatles during their tour with Dylan the previous year. They were ushered in past the massive crowds as the Beatles were to play the Maple Leaf Gardens that night. Mal Evans, their road manager, introed the boys again. And John had told them that they weren't really into touring anymore. There's too much screaming and too little music. Foreshadowing their discussion to quit touring and become a studio band only a few months later. Not long after checking out the Beatles, Rick Danko remembers the first time he went to Woodstock, New York. Various members of the Hawks were working on a film produced by Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary called You Are What You Eat. A documentary of sorts about the counterculture movement and hippies in San Francisco. Danko remembers getting up at 3am in February of 67 with Richard Manuel to drive up to Woodstock in time for sunrise. They were performing as part of Tiny Tim's band. Now Tiny Tim was a noted singer and ukulele player known for his signature high falsetto voice. Fox were taken aback by the beauty of the Catskill mountains as they filmed over various locations in Woodstock. Now Woodstock had been known to be a tolerant spot for artists dating back to the 1870s, and Peter Yarrow specifically had spent many summers in his youth in the Catskills. He had began bringing up friends and acquaintances to the area in 1962. This included Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager, who was also managing the affairs of the band at this point. He bought a large stone house in Bearsville, not that far away from Woodstock, and began to build a studio, among other businesses. Not long after, Bob Dylan married his wife, Sarah, and moved into the area in 1965. Since Dylan was unable to tour or travel extensively, he began to work with Howard Alk on the documentary they had shot in Europe on their previous tour. Grossman had suggested because the Hawks were on retainer, they take up residence in Woodstock to be closer to Dylan and work on his next album locally. So up they went. The Hawks were staying at the Woodstock Motel where they familiarized themselves with the rural, small town feel of Woodstock. And as most small towns, everyone got to know each other very quickly. Garth became quick friends with the motel owner, Bill, and he would eventually go on to actually find Garth a pipe organ. Tired of living in the motel, the Hawks went looking for a place to rent. Not so long after, Rick Danko found a pink split-level house with three bedrooms and a view of the Overlook Mountain. It came with a 100 acres of land, with woods, fields and ponds, thus Big Pink became their home base. Richard, Garth and Rick moved in. While Robbie rented a house on Glasgow Turnpike in Woodstock to be with his girlfriend Dominique, Big Pink became a clubhouse of sorts, as well as a place where they lived. Garth remembers how they broke down the housework.
1: Richard did the cooking, I did the vacuuming, and Rick did the outside work. I had this room. hmm?
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah. The Hawks finally started to make a home a massive change from living in hotels, motels, and cars for the past six years. That's also when Garth began putting together a makeshift recording studio in the basement of Big Pink. They had a little reel-to-reel tape recorder, and it certainly wasn't luxury, but it would do. That's where the Hawks and Dylan spent the next six to eight months working together recording songs six days a week for three to four hours at least. Luckily, Garth was quite meticulous and recorded everything in sound and writing. Fortunately, in this case, Garth Hudson is a very meticulous person who seemed to be the responsible party to put the tape recorder on top of his organ and a couple of mixers with microphones leading in and experiment how to record. Red Room tapes, my understanding is, is that... The microphone was put on top of a Wurlitzer electric piano which was being played. It was like a little broadcast mic stand without rubber feet. The mic is picking up that vibration and some of that stuff's pretty distorted but there's still good music that you can hear through it. Also during this time, Rick began to poke at Albert Grossman for a chance to have their own record contract. It also helped that Albert Grossman's wife Sally was really in love with the Hawks and was a massive supporter. Additionally, Dylan had told Grossman he wasn't planning on touring anytime soon. Without Levon, the Hawks cut some demos on Manhattan. Supervised by Grossman, they cut Chess Fever, The Rager featuring Garth Hudson's signature organ, and a tune Richard and Robbie wrote called Reuben Remus, inspired by Uncle Remus from the film Songs of the South. While the songs weren't perfect, they did the job and were sent out. Grossman sent them to Warner Brothers, and their label had Mo Austin, who had been responsible for selling a lot of Peter, Paul, and Mary's records, was interested in the band. However, the Hawks were a hot commodity and Capitol Records offered more. With prospects looking brighter, it was time. Rick called up Levon to tell him that they had signed a deal. Levon was hanging out with his friend, Mary Cavett in Memphis, and without hesitation, was really eager to come back. He hopped on a plane bound for New York. Richard and Rick picked up Levon at the airport and started their long journey back to the Catskills. Levon had a lot of catching up to do and was equally entranced by the mountains as the rest of the Hawks. It reminded him of the Ozarks, reminding him of home. Levon moved in and explored Big Pink. Impressed with the studio situation in the basement, it had an upright piano, a stand-up bass, a drum kit with plenty of amplifiers and microphones, Paired with a Revox tape recorder and an Alltech Lansing mixer, they were all good to go. It was also during this time, the Hawks broke to Levon, that Richard had been taking up the kit as their main drummer in his absence. Levon was impressed. Richard had a loose style and played behind the beat. He was impressive in so little time and without any training Richard had become such a stellar drummer. This led to Levon realizing that he had to build up his mandolin chops. This was now a band of musical chairs, everybody filling in on an instrument on any given song. Thus, the Hawks expanded their diverse selection of instrumentation that you can hear a lot on their early tracks. They also continued to work on Dylan's album. He would come over at the same time every day and they'd play, or they'd even spend some time at his house.
1: Initial sessions are held in the Red Room. Bob Dylan's own house and in typical Bob Dylan fashion I can report to you now that the Red Room wasn't red it had previously been red but it had been painted by the Dylans the point of uh, the Red Room sessions is
0: it's where Bob Dylan starts to get his mojo back Dylan was turning out 10 songs a week they do demos of them all he wasn't precious about his music either one take for the vocals one take for the instruments quick done easy onto the next track in the evenings, they headed back to Big Pink to jam, creating songs for themselves and other artists to cover. Dylan would then send him to his publisher in New York to sell the new and up and coming artists. Dylan was also turning the Hawks on to folk. Robbie remembers, you could hardly name a song that Bob didn't know all the words to. He was turning us on to some beautiful folk songs, The Old Triangle and Ain't No More Cane." The mood was very collaborative Big Pink hosted an old typewriter in the kitchen that they all type on.
1: And the typewriter would be there, and Bob would probably tap on it for a while, and then somebody would go downstairs to check the equipment or whatever.
0: That typewriter was a staple, and communal. After Dylan, maybe Richard would come in add a few lines, or Robbie and Rick would stop by. It was during this time iconic songs like This Wheel's on Fire, co-written by Dylan and Danko, was demoed and Richard and Dylan wrote Tears of Rage. And according to Levon, apparently even Garth sang a few tunes during this time, like Even If She Looks Like a Pig. They also cut fame songs now, like You Ain't Goin' Nowhere and Nothing Was Delivered. Dylan's songwriting was ever-changing, and being with the Hawks led Dylan's taste to lead more into R&B and blues. The Hawks were also expanding their own songwriting capabilities. The first song Levon sat in on when he arrived was Yazoo Street Scandal with Richard on drums. Levon ended up adding vocals and mandolin. Richard was also a songwriting force. In the Hawks Cut Orange Juice Blues, a meat and potato song with a searingly vocal by Richard and a fun honky tonk saxophone from Garf. Additionally, Richard worked with Robbie on co writing the song Katie's Been Gone. Often overlooked was the amazing songwriting pair that was Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel, crafting songs like When You Were Awake together. More on Katie's Been Gone, Davis Inman notes for American Songwriter. The song, in essence, was an open letter from an abandoned lover. Has long been rumored to be an homage to Karen Dalton an Oklahoma-born singer and fixture in the Greenwich Village folk scene in New York in the 60s. Somewhat of a cult figure, Dalton came to more prominent light when Dylan name-checked her as one of his favorite singers. Additionally, Grail Marcus states on Katie's Been Gone, the kind of love song only Richard Manuel can pull off. It was also around this time the Hawks started working on their vocal harmonies, a staple feature of the group's sound. Of course, much like their music, they mirrored some of their biggest influences to find the right balance. The staple singers, later featured in the last waltz, were the Hawks' biggest inspiration for harmonies, and you can definitely tell. Each voice coming in at a different time until you get the blend that was just magic, Levon later stated in his biography, it was the group's approach and can clearly be heard on their recordings by the time their first album dropped. The Hawks continued to get familiar with the local town folk, spending Thanksgiving that year with Happy and Artie Trom, staples of the music community in Woodstock. The Trom family were prolific musicians and songwriters, collectively working with Paul Butterfield, Pete Seeger and the band, and were in a similar scene in the 60s as Bob Dylan, Peter Lafarge and the Freedom Singers. Meanwhile Dylan was off to Nashville to work on his next album with Session Players. The tracks that the Hawks and Dylan were working on were brought back a few months later, prepped and ready for album release. Robbie and Garth were apparently supposed to overdub their guitar and organ parts, but declined because the recording was so exceptional that they had nothing to add. Dylan also had just re-upped his record deal for another five years. While Dylan was in Nashville, the Hawks spent their own time cutting demos. They worked on Nothing Was Delivered, Long Distance Operator, Don't You Tell Henry, and put some more work into unfinished track Ruben Remus. Unfortunately, around this time, Dylan's demo tapes that he was sending to his publisher were released and leaked under the title Great White Wonder. It had been over 18 months since fans had any new music from Dylan. And since he had been hiding away in Woodstock, fans were going crazy over where he was and what he was doing. There were even some rumors that he had died. Writer and critic Grail Marcus remembers Dylan's absence as strange.
1: This is 1966. He doesn't go back on the road again until 1974. That's a that's a long time. Dylan took a year and a half between Blonde on Blonde and John Wesley Harding. People referred to this as the period of silence. You know, as if as if this was some kind of uh, strange. A violation of, of the rules of time and space. In record business terms it was.
0: It was around this time the Hawks had a new guests at Big Pink. The Balls of Bengal, a group that Grossman had met in India, came in for a recording session. They were interesting, real good players and lived a sort of gypsy lifestyle. The balls ended up opening for Paul Butterfield and later the Birds and they also ended up recording at Big Pink with Garth Levon, Rick, and Charles Lloyd, an American jazz musician who had just hit Big with his 1966 album, Forest Flower. The tapes were later released as the Bengali Balls at Big Pink, and two of the members of the Balls, Luxman and Perna Das, posed with Dylan on his new album cover, which was later John Wesley Harding. Around Halloween of 1967, the band grabbed some instruments and a few costumes and went and surprised Howard Hulk for his birthday. He had just finished work on the Peter Yarrow film, You Are What You Eat. While at the party, the band was introduced to John Simon, who was helping with film music. The first time I met the band, reminisced Simon, I was in a house working with Howard Alk with a bunch of moviolas, trying to make some sense out of this crazy movie. All of a sudden, there was an eerie noise outside. We opened a window, and there's all the guys in the band, dressed up in crazy costumes and playing crazy instruments, serenading Howard because it was his birthday. Simon had worked with Jasmine Charles Lloyd in 1965 and had carved out a career working with Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, and Marshall McLuhan's influential work, The Medium is the Message, based on the book of the same name. Simon's eclectic mix of recordings were intriguing to the group, and his talent and command as a producer would later help the band craft their first album. Still very close to Dylan, in January of '68, the Hawks went down to Manhattan to play behind Dylan at the memorial tribute to Woody Guthrie at Carnegie Hall. It was Dylan's first appearance in two years, and he looked different, healthier. His hair was shorter and slicked back, and there was no booing. The Hawks and Dylan played Dear Miss Roosevelt, their Grand Coulee Dam, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Playing the tribute helped the Hawks immensely as they were cementing themselves and working with the record company to begin their career. But not everything was solidified. They had to come up with a name. When signing the papers for Capitol, they were stuck. While the Hawks was a great name, it was also associated with Ronnie Hawkins, and they weren't his backing band anymore. Half-jokingly, Richard suggested Chocolate Subway or Marshmallow Overcoat. Levon came up with the Honkies, a particularly provocative name. Later, they settled on the name The Crackers, and their official record deal with Capitol has them signed under the name. An interesting thing to note is their contract also stipulated that they were allowed to play with Dylan on any album, television program, or any other related task deemed necessary outside of their own record contract. Grossman had set up the deal, nevertheless Dylan and Grossman were on the outs, and he eventually left his management, leaving the band to take up his spot. The band was also getting all of their ducks in a row when it came to producing their music and contacted John Simon to produce their first album. But it wasn't just that easy. They invited him to Big Pink to hang out for a few days. And they didn't even show him music at first. It was important that if he was welcomed into the fold, that his personality had to mesh. Finally, on something like the fourth day, they showed him We Can Talk and Simon was blown away by the shared vocals and wanted to work with the band immediately. Funnily enough, Simon was the only producer that the band had even contacted for the job, but it didn't matter. They were looking for someone who was enthusiastic, and more importantly, somebody that the group felt comfortable with. It had come time for the band to sit down and review the material that they were working on over the past years to submit to Capitol. While they had signed their deal, the label was eager to hear some music. Tears of Rage and I Shall Be Released were strong contenders for the album, and they also included working versions of the Danko Dylan, This Wheel's on Fire. Rick was also particularly strong about including Caledonia Mission. They also wanted to include at that time, Ain't No More Kane, which was a Dylan staple, and Levon's father used to sing to him as a child. Also, the Garth-led Chess Fever, with awe-inspiring organ, was included. The band was debating between two Richard tracks also. Lonesome Susie, or Katie's Been Gone, for inclusion. And while Katie's Been Gone had Richard's powerful vocal and a great harmony by Rick, which was similar to the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, the shrill emotion of Lonesome Susie also had so much power. They ultimately let John Simon decide. Lastly, there was a few tracks that they were playing around with, including a new composition, The Wait, and Don't You Tell Henry, with Leave On On Vocal. They were also working on a new Richard song, In A Station, and a Dylan tune, Richard sung, Long Distance Operator. After compiling all the tunes that they thought might be good for the first album, they showed John Simon who was thrilled with the selection of music, and also had his own ideas on arrangements which intrigued the band. And as the band geared up to record, Simon hung around more while recording and playing happened. As the band finished workshopping songs like The Wait, Simon was an integral part. The band was also very conscious of their sound. They wanted to be unique and stand out from the acts of the day. The references that the band kept on making were to the various regional sounds of musicians like Chess Studios in Chicago, Sun Records in Memphis, Cosmos Studio in New Orleans, Muscle Shoals in Alabama, and Golden Star in Los Angeles. All distinct in their sound and approach, and John Salmon was aligned with that thinking. It was important that the band created their own sonic identity. While Big Pink was a great spot for hanging out and writing music, it couldn't really be used to record music professionally. And John Simon had suggested that they take their recording to A&R Studios in New York to begin their first round of recordings. So it was back to the big city to record their first album. The album that would launch their own unique sound and change the landscape of popular music of the era. Wow, it's been great getting to this point in the podcast everyone. We're about to hit the golden age of the band, and I'm really stoked to explore it with you in the upcoming episodes. Uh, The Basement Tapes is a very interesting time in the band's history. Uh, Such a creative outpouring of songwriting and collaboration with Dylan, and researching this episode was fantastic. Um, And just the engagement on social media so far has been really great. Seeing everybody's comments has been really rewarding, and thank you for following the show. I want to give a big shout out to our continued supporter, Tim Peretta, and another big longtime supporter so far, Kenneth Rockburn. Uh, Your donations monthly and your support mean a lot to help make the show even better. Remember, you can check out our Spotify playlist. It features awesome music by Ronnie Hawkins, John Hammond Jr., Bob Dylan, the band, and their respective solo careers. Also a reminder to check us out on social media. We're putting a lot of time into providing great context and historical posts with unique photos of the band. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Band Podcast. Thank you for listening, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. This show was produced, written, researched, and hosted by Tyrell Listen. produced and edited by Tegan Chevrier, with additional research from Fiona Chevrier. The Band of History is not endorsed by the band or any affiliated stakeholders. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All audio clips are registered trademarks or copyright of the original trademark and copyright owners. and off the blue stone feeling every line hits me square in the chest every single
1: time shine. His light still lives in that
0: barn and Levon's on my mind. His light still lives in that barn and Levon's on my